My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Welcome to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. For well over a year now, our pastor has been discussing the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jones began his study of Christ's final sermon as recorded in the New Testament. This is sometimes called Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia, is found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This discourse speaks to a question we have asked several times on this broadcast. Has the Christian church changed from what Christ would want it to be? A simple answer to this question would be that it depends on the church. Jesus addressed seven different congregations in this message, and one church for which he only had praise was the persecuted church in the city of Smyrna. This would seem to correspond with faithful Christians who live in places hostile to Christ and the Christian gospel. A second assembly that received little, if any, rebuke was the church in ancient Philadelphia in modern-day Turkey. This congregation was given an open door of opportunity to minister for Christ and was aggressively getting out the good news of the gospel. Four of the five remaining churches to whom Jesus spoke received a mixture of rebuke and praise. The seventh and last church Jesus addressed was found in the city of Laodicea. It was a very wealthy church, but sadly the members were self-satisfied and felt that they had need of nothing. Jesus had nothing good to say to them, but rebuked and warned them to turn from their evil ways. The church Jesus addressed in today's study was found in the ancient city of Pergamos. These Christians were also located in an area hostile to the gospel. In fact, Jesus told the messenger from the church of Pergamos that his congregation was in the place where Satan's throne was. This did not mean that there was a literal throne for Satan in that city, but that sin and deception dominated the culture there. Like the Christians in Smyrna, some believers had been put to death in Pergamos, but unlike the Smyrna church, Jesus also had some criticism of the believers at Pergamos. What evil did Christ see in this church, and what did they need to do about it? I pray you'll keep listening to find out. Well, it's good to have you back for another Beacon of Hope broadcast, and I'm dealing with Christ's last message when he spoke to seven different churches in um, one little region called Asia Minor in the in the Roman Empire or or the or Asia not the continent of Asia uh, but the area of the Roman Empire called Asia in the first century and uh, Jesus is is giving this uh, revelation to John um, toward the end of the first century actually several well, decades after Christ had had uh, risen from the dead, and so this is the last uh, message that Christ uh, has that's recorded in the New Testament. And um, let me ask you this question as we get started: Have you ever truly suffered for your faith? Now, the the uh, the church that he's going to address, uh, Pergamus, was going through a persecution, and and there were several of these churches that had either gone through it or were going through it at that time. And um, so this church is a church where actually Jesus said, Satan reigns in your city. And what an awful uh, thought. Uh, you talk about being in a, in a tough area. Well, the church at Pergamos was. And so we're going to see what Jesus had to say to these people who were in a very tough area. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. You've lived in some some areas that are very difficult, uh, some places, maybe neighborhoods or cities or towns where it just seemed like there was a real spirit of evil uh, just all throughout the society. Well, that's that's the kind of situation that these believers in Christ were experiencing in this town or the city called Pergamos. 
And so we'll see what Jesus had to say. Before we get started, let's just ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, give us help as we look into your word. Uh, today we ask that you be glorified, that you give us understanding, help me to be able to communicate it clearly as to what our Savior was saying to these uh, people. And may you help us all to make this practical to our own lives and, and, um, and our own situations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I come to uh, Revelation chapter 2 and starting with verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things say, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So as with the other churches, Jesus starts out with another uh, little revelation about himself, and he mentions that he has the uh, sharp two-edged sword. Now, uh, what does that mean? Uh, why would he bring that up? Well, the the uh, sword can, the two-edged sword, can mean uh, several different things, and so I'd like to give you some thoughts on that. It can mean God's judgment, and God's judgment can come in two different forms. It may come in the form of natural consequences for sin. And so I'm reading in, in Proverbs chapter 5 uh, a statement that is found in, in chapter 5 and verse 4, and here's uh, what Solomon wrote there. He says, but the, uh, I'll back up to verse 3 to get the context. The lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, um, so he's talking about adultery, and that um, the adulterous woman, he's writing to a son, that's why he mentions a woman here, the adulterous woman um, uh, really is, it will, will cut you to the heart, uh, because if you leave your wife for her, or you or you are immoral with her when she has a husband. In either case, um, there is great suffering coming, and uh, suffering that's going to cut right through you. And so Solomon is warning his son. Now, I don't believe that in many cases God has to step in with uh, extra punishment. Um, Really, a lot of times he lets the natural consequences of the breakdown of the marriage um, uh, really uh, wreak havoc in these people's lives. It's, it's It's a sad reality that God's judgment often comes in simply the natural consequences of a of, of foolish decisions. Now, there's another way that God's judgment can fall, and that is in direct vengeance on evil. And I'm, I'm reading now out of Psalm 149, and again, this is compared to a two-edged sword. Psalm 149, verse 6 and 7, it talks about the, um, um, and I believe this is during Christ's reign when he comes on earth to finally deal with what's going on down here, all the sin. He says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, talking about God's saints, and a two-edged sword in their hand. Now there's that reference to a two-edged sword, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. And you say, well, boy, why would God bring punishment upon, um, upon people? Um, well, because what has been going on, if you understand um, the, uh, the, Re- the book of Revelation and what God says is going to be happening right before Christ returns, there is tremendous oppression. Uh, think of, of, of some of the oppression that was done in the Soviet Union, um, that was done in, in Nazi Germany, that was done in the Roman Empire, and put that all on a, a, a much higher level, and you're getting an idea of what will be going on during uh, the tribulation period right before the Lord returns. And so those people who were involved in such wicked deeds and and murdering people and, and enslaving people, those people will reap the direct vengeance of God. And it's compared to, and it's uh, the symbolized by a two-edged sword. So God's judgment is sometimes what 
is pictured with the two-edged sword. There's also uh, a reference, and in, in, in those of you that maybe know the, the, your scriptures might remember that the two-edged sword is also a way that God refers to his own word. And so in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says the, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it says, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So uh, rather interesting uh, what that is saying. Um, and the idea of God's word as, as compared to a two-edged sword is, um, is, is able to discern. Now, um, by the way, God's word uh, is also embodied in Christ himself. The, and John 1 talks about that. Um, but certainly, uh, uh, Jesus uh, can be referring here to the two-edged sword as God's word. Um, then I want you to also think about the fact that uh, this again refers to God's discernment. And so, as he's talking to the church at Pergamos, and he says, I have the sharp two-edged sword, I think the fact that it's sharp is indicating, yes, God's willing to judge the people of this church, and he'll judge them by the standard of his word, uh, because he can discern um, good from evil and really what's going on. And so, in the next few verses, he describes what's going on in this church. It's found in, back in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 13. It says, I know your works, Jesus is saying, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So verse 13 um, is a... a uh, um, uh, beginning of the description, and really, it's pretty positive. He, he mentions where they're living, and he is saying, you are in a tough area. Now, we do know something about the uh, town of Pergamos. Uh, this was a city that was devoted to idol worship, and it was in a region of the Roman Empire, again, that I mentioned, called Asia. The city boasted of a huge library, some 200,000 volumes, which would be quite impressive back in the ancient world. And the pages, by the way, were made of parchment, which seems to have first been used, and you could look this up and see if, if you agree with this, but it seems to have first been used in Pergamus area. In fact, the term parchment um, seems to be a derivative uh, from the name of the city Pergamus. The city also became a center, a center for arts and medicine. Um, Smyrna, we mentioned them last week in the message that Jesus preached to that, uh, uh, the, the church in that town. Smyrna eventually replaced Pergamus as the political capital of the region, but Pergamus remained the religious center of that region. And so the people of this city, they worshipped four major gods. Now, they worshipped Zeus, who is uh, the, like the, the, in, in the pantheon, he would be the supreme god, the chief ruler among the gods. They worshipped a, a goddess by the name of Athena, and she was thought to be the goddess of wisdom, of arts, of crafts, and war. They worshipped a third god, uh, Asclepius, a uh, god of medicine and healing, and Bacchus was the fourth god, a god of drunkenness. And so when you think of it, it's like Satan was covering all the bases for the people the uh, pagans of this particular city, offering them idols, the idol of their choice, really. You had uh, Zeus, who's really for power 
and um, also, by the way, over the weather. Uh, Athena, arts, wisdom, war. Uh, by the way, defensive war. Uh, Mars would be the god of, um, of like more of an offensive war. Uh, Asclepius, medicine and healing. A lot of people are interested in that. And then Bacchus, drunkenness, hedonism, doing whatever you want. And so uh, you can see that these gods um, were really uh, could be very popular. And so it was pretty tough to be a Christian in this city. And so he says, you're in a tough area. And Jesus is, is, is starting out with saying, you are living where Satan's seat or Satan's throne is. This is a place dominated by, um, by the devil. Now, he's, he, then he talk, starts to talk to them about what they've done. And, of course, positively, we, we read verse 13. He said, you've held fast to my name. That's a good thing. Um, he also said that you have not denied my faith. You have not denied the faith. And, again, that's a good thing, too. And um, I want you to think about the fact that um, it's, you know, we've not been really severely tested in this country uh, for our faith. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm praying for a couple Chinese pastors that I've been informed about. I won't give you um, their names. I probably wouldn't pronounce them right anyway. But uh, one man was sentenced to uh, 10 years. Another looks like he was sentenced to 12 years for the crime of pastoring uh, churches in, in communist China. And they're still in prison right now. I think the one guy is not due to get out until uh, 2025. And uh, the other one, maybe 2026, something in that neck, in that um, uh, time frame. And um, I, I have been. Uh, I've got a, a friend that that is um, uh, understands and, and is quite involved in in persecuted Christians trying to help them. And um, I've, I've emailed him and, and trying to get an idea of how I can at least send something, an encouragement, let them know I'm praying for them. Uh, because it's very important. These these uh, believers are are away from their families, away from their church families. They're they're you know they're they're not able to if they have children raise their kids and hug their wives and and we just don't understand what it's like. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamos here, you're dwelling in a very difficult area, and 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 we, I commend you in the fact that you have held fast to my name. You're not ashamed that you're a Christian. You're you're standing up for that and. You are not denying the faith. And, of course, that's very important. He said one more, one more thing about them, and that is that they had even faced persecution to the death, um, where he says, uh, um, in, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Um, I was just reading a short uh, account uh, from a resource entitled Today in the World. Now, this is way back in 1989 when this was written, but I thought this was interesting. It said, During the, the China's Boxer Rebellion in uh, of 1900, insurgents captured a mission state station, blocked all the gates but one, and in front of that one gate placed a cross flat on the ground. Then the word was passed to those inside that any who trampled the cross underfoot would be permitted their freedom and life but that any refusing would be shot. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross under their feet and were allowed to go free. But the eighth student, a young girl, refused to commit the sacrilegious act. Kneeling beside the cross in prayer for strength, she arose and moved carefully around the cross and went out to face the firing squad. Strengthened by her example, 
Every one of the remaining 92 students followed her to the firing squad. Now that that's uh, genuineness in their faith. Those people are showing uh, what this Antipas from uh, the church at Pergamos was showing, and that is, listen, you know, I am willing to lay down my life for our Lord. And so, again, if you're the pastor of the church at Pergamos and you're you're hearing Christ, uh, what Christ said about your church, I would be feeling uh, pretty good and uh, being thankful that my church folk. Are, are are this loyal and have been commended by our Lord. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Remember, he, he said, I hold the two-edged sword. So he's not only discerning what is good and complimenting them for that and praising them for that, but he also is going to discern um, what is not good and, and, and deal with that. And so at verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. And you got to love this about our Lord. Um, he's he's completely honest. He doesn't um, he, he he does not skip over, and you'll notice he starts with praise for these people. But then he says, "But you, but here's some things that you need to get right. These are these are not good. I have a few things against you because you hold, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols." and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, it's interesting. Here's what Jesus sees negatively. He sees that the church has not purged itself from false doctrine. Um, And he gives two examples, the, the doctrine of Balaam, and he gives the example of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so... Um, let, let me talk to you first about the doctrine of Balaam. You'd have to um, understand an account that goes back to the Old Testament, and you'd find it right around Numbers 23 and 24, uh, right in, in that area. And what happened is the, the children of Israel are out in the wilderness. They've not yet entered the Promised Land. They've left Egypt. They've been delivered from Egyptian slavery. They're in the wilderness, and they're getting ready to uh, go in and conquer the Promised Land. And while they were out there, there was a king of a, of a nation called Midian who became very much afraid that the Israelites were going to attack him, which, by the way, they were not. And so he sent for a, uh, a guy who was considered to be a prophet um, in, out near Mesopotamia, which is quite a distance away, and he asked him to come and curse uh, this uh, unknown people. And so when Balaam, the man that is referenced here by Christ, when he got that news, he he um, he went to, to he he prayed and he said, you know, can I go with these guys and curse these people? He's going to get paid for it. And God appeared, uh, God spoke to him and said, no, you can't. These are people are blessed. I've blessed them. Uh, you can't you can't do this. And so he he mentioned he came out um, uh, the next morning or whatever, and he said to the messengers, I can't do it. God has refused to let me do it. And so they went back and told the king of Midian. Well, the king of Midian didn't want to take no for an answer. He was really much afraid, and he thought that Balaam was his man. And so, so he um, he sent a second group of messengers with with uh, who were maybe higher up, who were higher up in his government, who also uh, so they'd be more impressive. He also offered more money, and he says basically the same thing: "You got to come and curse these people for me." 
And Balaam says the same thing. He says, well, I'll have to ask God. I can't do anything God wouldn't allow me to do. Let me just stop there for a second and say when God says that something is wrong, you don't need to pray about it. I mean, honestly, I don't have to pray about whether God would want me to uh, physically uh, manhandle my wife. There's no need to pray about that. It's just wrong. But anyway, Balaam goes back and he, and he, and he prays again. And, and the Lord said, if they come and call for you, then you can go with them. And, but Balaam gets up and doesn't even seem to wait for that. He saddles his donkey and he's going. Well, long story short, he gets out. And God won't let him curse the Israelites. In fact, instead, God makes him bless them. But um, he also told him on the way, don't say anything other than what I give you to say. And when you look at the account and what happens afterward, Balaam did not keep that from the Lord. This is why he didn't want him to go in the first place, it seems. Um, When we put the accounts together, what Balaam does is he told the, the, the king of Midian something like this, because when he's blessing the Israelites instead of cursing them, obviously it made the king of Midian extremely angry. Uh, he called him and, and, and was going to pay him to curse the Israelites, and that wasn't happening. And so uh, Balaam um, says basically this to the king of Midian. I can't curse them myself, but I can tell you how they would be cursed. And by his advice, he recommended that the king of Midian send um, some of his uh, most attractive women down to the Israelite camp and invite them to their pagan altars, to their sacrifices. And in in paganism, there was a lot of immorality that went on as well. And many of the Israelite men uh, fell for it, went with them to their pagan sacrifices, obviously because of interest in the women. And we're actually bringing now these pagan women back into the camp, which was um, uh, which caused great havoc to the Israelites and caused a major problem. So, what does Jesus mean by the doctrine of Balaam? Well, I, I believe it's simply this. First of all, it's fellowship with idolatry and with the immorality that springs from it. And remember, these people of Pergamos, they're living a tough life. They're, they're in the middle of, of a place where four different major idols are being worshipped. And they're covering all the bases from health to, uh, to arts to uh, power and weather and um, even just just hedonism, doing whatever you want. And so the the Christians there, although they had been standing for their faith, a, a different doctrine was coming in among some of them, and that is, hey, you can go to the pagan sacrifices, and you know God's God God's okay with it. He won't He won't be angry with you, um, you know, uh, committing uh, immorality every once in a while. And and so what was happening is they were not dealing with this with this dangerous doctrine. Jesus also mentioned that they were allowing people called the, who, had, who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We talked about that last week. Now, I read uh, another commentator who uh, connected this group with Nicholas, um, a, a Jewish proselyte who was uh, picked as one of the seven original deacons. Now, whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. Um, but the thought is that though of good reputation, he was a false believer and he led people into false doctrine similar to what um, to what some are teaching today. And the heresy uh, he taught was that seems to be that since Jesus had died for all your sins and God's grace overcomes all your faults and, failure, and, and failures, it really doesn't matter how you live. And so the idea is God's grace is so abundant that... Um, that it doesn't, you know, you you don't have to confess sin. That basically God's okay with whatever you do, 
Matter of fact, there's a, a, a movement today that's it's saying basically the same thing. It's called the hyper grace movement. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but it, what it's all about, it's, it's saying this very thing that, uh, and I'll give you the tenets of it. Uh, they say that salvation, at salvation, God forgives all your sins, past, present, and future. That's true. They say that God's love and grace are perfect and never changing, and that's true. His love doesn't change even when we fail him. That's true. They say that once you're saved, a Christian uh, cannot change his relationship with God. Now, here's where the, the falsehood begins to come in. Um, parents, you, you understand that when your children um, do something that's wrong, especially as they get older and more willful, it's not that you love them less, but it does affect your relationship. There can be times when, when your child really makes a decision that hurts you very deeply, and maybe um, maybe he or she doesn't even want to talk to you any longer because you happen to say that, that something was wrong in, in his or her life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Well, the problem with this idea is it's like, well, I can live any way I want, and God's just perfectly okay with me. Uh, coming before him as if all is well. And that's not taught in the scripture here. As a matter of fact, we'll see Jesus' own words here um, um, deflate this idea. They basically then say, in this hyper-grace movement, that the Old Testament is pretty much obsolete. They're, they're saying that the Old Testament is basically work salvation and the New Testament is grace salvation, and that is false as well. Uh, again, the problem is a lot of people get sucked into this because they don't know their Bibles. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham was saved not by his works, he was saved by faith, just like we are saved by faith. And let me read you what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, about this. this. It was a similar heresy that was going on in his day. He says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who afflicts, inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not uh, say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Paul is saying, look, to say that it doesn't matter how I live as a Christian is foolishness. And, and you don't want to, it's a perversion of the gospel of grace. They also, in the hyper-grace movement, tend to say that sin never needs to be confessed. And this is one of the big things. It's like, well, if your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, you should never have to confess sins. And further, the Holy Spirit does not convict you of sin. Now, if that's true, then why is the Son of God telling the church at Pergamos that these are the things I have against you? And you need to make these things right? Obviously, he's telling them this so they can make these things right. So be aware that there are many movements like this that are out there under the guise of Christianity, and they're not they're 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 not fitting the Bible. They're they're not at all. False doctrine then is to be rooted out, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've left these people in your church. And you, they should not be coddled or allowed to continue. Now can you understand? Why a church? Why this church particularly, where he Jesus said Satan is reigning in this town? Why this church would have struggled with 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 this sin of because you know they're in the hotbed of satanic influence. If you can put yourself in their sandals for a moment, you know think about what they're going through. It'd be easy to feel that hey, anybody that's not against us is our friend, 
And, and, and these people certainly are acting, oh, like, we're Christians like you are. And the, the teaching that you could go along with a pagan lifestyle, you know, and, 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 and not, if you have to feel guilty, if you, if you, if you um, worship an idol, or if you, you know, if you have sex with somebody that's not your wife, if, you know, boy, that would appeal to Christians who are suffering and, and feel ostracized from everything. And if you have such problems from without this church, um, imagine when these people get in it and they start saying, oh, yeah, as Christians, yeah, you can go to the pagan altars and you can you can go because Jesus has forgiven you everything and, and it doesn't really matter. So Satan doesn't merely work outside the church, folks. He lives, he works within it. Matter of fact, this last Sunday, I was really challenging my people on that. I think many times we we as Christians tend to look outside the church walls about all those bad people out there, and we're not looking at our own lives what God is is saying to us. And he's, I believe, God is more concerned what what the people inside the Bible preaching churches are doing than what the people outside them are doing. I really do. And hypocrisy is something that we as Christians have to deal with. And I would just say whether, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, um, uh, just keep something in mind, and that is that God is is reaching out um, to all people, but when he saves somebody, it doesn't make that person um, uh, a, a perfect person by any stretch. And, and, and just like Jesus is addressing this church, they've got problems. They've, they've had a good stand for the faith. They haven't denied the fact that they belong to Christ. But now they got some people in there that are, are saying, well, it really doesn't matter how we live, fellas. You know, we've already been forgiven, so let's just do whatever we want to do. And you say, well, why do you have to get, why do Christians and churches, why do you have to tell some people, no, you can't stay? Let me ask you this question. Let's say you had a druggist at your local pharmacy who every once in a while, purposefully did not give the drug the doctor requested, but instead he substituted maybe a less effective medication, but it was more costly to you, so he would make more money. Well, what should be done with him? Well, obviously, if the guy is is cheating to get himself ahead, okay, at the, at the expense of people around him, um, we all would say that druggist needs to go. Why should we think it's any different in the church? If you've got people that are that are teaching false doctrine so that they can live any way they want to live and it's ruining the lives of people around them because let's be honest, the immoral lifestyle is like that two-edged sword we talked about earlier where the consequences just start adding up. And so to say that we should just leave these people in the church and let them go, that is not what the scriptures teach at all. So if you love Jesus, you cannot be tolerant of those who slander him. Neither his person, they can't slander his person, nor his words are to be slandered. And again, how would you respond if someone you knew was willfully lying about, about say, your husband or wife? Or one of your kids? When people lie about what Christ is teaching, it ought not to be tolerated. And I'm not talking about you not understanding perfectly every verse of Scripture, but I am talking about when, when you're leading people down a road of saying, hey, being an immoral person, it doesn't matter. And, and you know, we're just going to, God loves you where you're at, and it doesn't matter how you live. That's just not true. And Christians have laid down their lives over the centuries um, because of their loyalty to Christ. And Jesus is saying, look, you've done well, Pergamos, on that, on, on actually having a guy in your church who is a martyr for me, 
and and he was faithful. But now you're starting to let false doctrine in, and it's going to hurt you. And Jesus is saying, here's what you need to do. Now notice what his counsel is. He says in verse 16, repent. Now that blows away the hyper-grace movement that says that the Holy Spirit never will tell you you're doing something wrong and never ask you to pray for forgiveness. Well, then why is Jesus telling these people, repent? Repent means I've got to see I was wrong. That they're saying God doesn't do. And this is Christ himself saying this. Repent means I need, I need to turn around and and um, and do and go the other direction. Let me tell you, First John one nine says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ought to confess when we do something wrong. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone has something against you, you need to go to that person and you need to tell them you are wrong before you try to go on and worship the Lord. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about it, the fact that your, let's say again, your, your, uh, your husband or your wife uh, says some very unkind, very hurtful things to you. Would you not want them to come back at some point and say, hey, you know what, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Jesus tells us to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. Why would anybody teach that the Holy Spirit would never convict you of sin? That's foolishness, utter foolishness. So what is Jesus saying? He says you need to repent. Notice, I'll keep reading. He says, repent or else. So he's saying if you don't turn from allowing these people who are teaching uh, probably a lot of the younger people in the church, hey, you can live any way you want. If you don't, if you don't deal with this, he says, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's saying two things. First of all, you if you won't deal with it, I'll come, and I, and you'll be caught suddenly in 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 your sin. You're you're going to be exposed. Kind of interesting. There was an enthusiastic but somewhat unscrupulous salesman who was waiting to see uh, the purchasing agent. I'm getting this out of the Reader's Digest from years back, by the way. And um, so the salesman was there to try to get a sale, obviously, from this company, and he was there to submit his company's bid. Uh, like a price quote uh, for a particular job. Now, when he comes into the office and the the man stepped out of the office um, who was who was in there, when he, when he goes into the office to to uh, put his quote down, he couldn't help but notice that the competitor's bid was on the purchasing agent's desk. Unfortunately, he couldn't see the actual figure because it was the figure that that the other company had bid because it was covered up by a can of juice. So the temptation of to this salesman was, hey, I kind of like to know where our bid is compared to this other guy's bid, which, by the way, is not legal. But I, I'd like to know how they're doing, and and if we are, are, you know, maybe he could adjust it or whatever. So the uh, the guy doesn't come back in the office, and he's not coming back. And so the salesman finally temptation got too great, and he lifts the can of juice to try to check out. What the uh, what the other guy's price was, competitor's price was, but the only problem is, as he did it, thousands of BBs poured onto the floor. The can didn't have any juice in it. It didn't have a bottom in it. It had BBs, which revealed to the uh, to the man who went out of the office that the salesman um, was in fact trying to cheat. And I thought that was an interesting thing that um, this company was checking out to see if if the salesman was going to be honest. 
And, of course, he failed that test. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, folks, if you won't deal in the church of Pergamos, if you're not going to be willing to deal with these false teachers, I'm coming back when you're not expecting it. And not only that, but he's saying, I'm going to fight against those false teachers myself. Now, that's quite a statement as well. And it really um, um, is shows you how uh, when we don't think that false teachers need to be eliminated um, and 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 not allowed to to have their influence in a church, when we don't think that, we're not thinking like Jesus is thinking. He's thinking a guy's crooked; he needs to go. And then he challenges not just that church, but everybody who will listen. Now, listen how he says it: He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, that's that's, that's you. That's me. That's any of us that are willing to listen to what Jesus said. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So specifically, that's why we have this message of Christ at the end of the Scriptures. He's saying, I'm not just talking to the church of Pergamos. I'm talking to any of you who are willing to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, now that's a mouthful. So he's challenging all of us who will listen. And and the first thing is, uh, do not treat false teachers as true brethren. Because he's saying, if you're going to overcome, and that means you've got to be willing to, to follow his instructions, repent. And he, what he said to repent of was leaving these false teachers in the church. He says, so do not treat false teachers as true brethren. And and he's saying, okay, if you overcome now, and you'll be blessed for your uh, obedience. And so what what blessings did he give? He mentioned three. He mentioned something about he'll have the hidden manna. I will give him some of the hidden, hidden manna to eat. Now, what is that about? Well, uh, again, if you know uh, some of your accounts from the Old Testament, when the Israelites were out in the desert and they were... Uh, not they were between Egypt where they had left and the promised land. They're in the middle of nowhere. And um, those people, uh, about 2 million of them, because there's 600,000 uh, men of um, 20 years old and up. And if you think about women and children, you're probably looking at a population somewhere around 2 million. These people would have easily starved to death out there but God gave them what's called manna from heaven. It's It was a, a miraculous thing. Every morning they got... It was a type of a wafer, and they could they could cook that up, and uh, it sustained them. Now, after a while, they they um, you know getting manna morning, noon, and night, or however often they ate, um, you know it got old for them, but it sustained them. And it's interesting that Jesus had a discussion in John chapter six with a group of people after he had um, performed the great miracle of, of the feeding of the five thousand. And it was the next day, and, and uh, well, people are a lot like us uh, back then. They're still like us today, and that is they, 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 wanted, um, they weren't just satisfied with Christ meeting their need. And it was a real need because they had been, they'd been uh, uh, listening to the Lord and, and, and um, with him all day, and, and they were in the middle of nowhere themselves. And so the Lord provided, through the little boy's lunch, he provided food for everybody. Well, the problem is now they figured they've got a new welfare program, and, and uh, so they want another meal the next day. And Christ is talking to them. And, he, and, and here's, here's their suggestion, because they're looking for another miracle. They said, Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, how about doing that miracle again? And maybe we'll believe in you if you do that miracle again. Then Jesus said unto them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They're, they're still thinking physical. and They're thinking, hey, if you can give us that bread from heaven, we'll take it and we'll take it from now till we die. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger. Uh, sorry, he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is saying, I'm not giving you another meal. I'm saying, come to me and believe in me. That is what you really need. That's the sustenance you need. So I think that this reference indicates that the overcomer in Revelation 2 is showing that they truly belong to Christ and they have fellowship with him. Breaking the bread, uh, bread together, by the way, is, is, uh, is still a way of expressing fellowship. And so I think that he's saying, if you overcome, you're going, it shows that you really belong to me. You're going to have fellowship with me in heaven. A second thing he promised them is this white stone. He said, um, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no man knows except he who knows it. Now, what does a white stone refer to? Um, I'll give you one idea that I thought was fascinating to me. There's only one other place in the entire New Testament where that word for stone shows up. Now, remember, the, the, uh, the New Testament is written originally in the Greek language, which is pretty expressive. And, and so uh, there are other words that were used for stone, but not that particular Greek word except in Acts chapter 26 and verse 10. And uh, so I'm going to read you that passage. And it, it's, it's actually the Apostle Paul giving his testimony in front of a king by the name of Agrippa. And here's what Paul is. He's talking about when he was, before he was converted to Christ, how he actually persecuted Christians. And, and so here's what Paul says. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now, that phrase, uh, I, I helped put Christians to death, and when he says, I cast my vote against them, that, that's the English translation for uh, literally, I cast down my pebble. And why they made cast my vote is because it would make a whole lot more sense when you understand what Paul's talking about. In the courts of those days, you voted by casting down either a black pebble, which meant the person is guilty, or a white pebble, meaning I think they're innocent. And so how they would do it is when they would come to the end of the trial, then the different people who would vote guilt or innocence, they would throw their pebble in and it would happen so fast that you didn't necessarily know who put in what. Um, so it was kind of a little game, a little bit of anonymity. At the same time, then you could look in the middle and you say, okay, there's this many black pebbles, there's this many white pebbles, this is how many people think he's guilty, uh, how many people think he is innocent. And thus it seems to me what Jesus is saying is that I will give you the white stone of innocence when you overcome for me. When you're willing to put away false doctrine and stay true to my name, it is showing that you are innocent. You truly do belong to me. And then he mentions, 
On that stone, I'm going to give him a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And I think that's a wonderful thing as well. It's kind of interesting. Early Christians, and and, uh, we don't practice this in our circles today, but uh, maybe there are some Christians that still do. Early Christians, um, at times, would change their names um, upon accepting Christ and following him in believer's baptism. And um, so... Uh, that could be the idea that they're, uh, again, I'm a changed person, so give me a different name. But I I like the idea behind this new name that, um, like when when I started dating my wife, um, I would call her by names that she hadn't been called for by before, uh, darling, um, or whatever term of endearment maybe you have for your husband or your wife. And I think that this is, is 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 part of the picture what Christ is talking about. He says, "I'm I am I'm you're going to have fellowship with me in heaven, even though a lot of people may hate you on earth." And now again, they're they're dwelling in a, in a place of great satanic influence. And so he's saying to the church of Pergamos, "Hey, you do what's right. You put out these false teachers from among you, and and really live for me. You're going to be with me in heaven one day, and we're going to have fellowship together." And I'm declaring you innocent. You have a white stone because you're you're genuine. See, some of those people inside the church tragically were fakes, and they were there. And and the reason why they're teaching, well, you can live any way you want, is because they weren't genuinely converted. But Jesus is saying to the true ones, the ones who would do what's right, He's saying, you know what? You're going to get a white stone, stone of innocence. And and then the third thing, I'm I'm going to give you your own special name. Shows the how 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 close we are. Um, to the the reality of of a personal intimate relationship with our Savior uh, when we get saved. Um, now, what do we conclude from Jesus' message to the Church of Pergamos? Well, first of all, our Lord is loving and understanding, because uh, He's telling them, "Look, you're in a very difficult spot, and I appreciate this about your church." But He is also strict and thorough, is He not? He's not just glossing over what they're doing wrong. He's He's both complimenting them. And he's saying, yeah, but this is coming between us. You're allowing these false teachers, and and they're going to wreak havoc. You need to deal with them. Number two, the location does matter. Some places are harder than others. And I I know um, this has been a humbling thing for me because, quite honestly, um, uh, the church I am in is a very, um, I, I found it to be a very loving church, a very kind church to me and to my family. And I, I didn't control that. Uh, you know, God put me here and has been very kind to put me here. And and um, I, there, I can't take credit for that, but there are other dear saints, and they're serving in places which are very difficult. And so location does make a difference. And another reason why we shouldn't judge one Christian over another, we're not in the same, in the same um, shoes so many times. Uh, thirdly, God expects us to be faithful no matter the location. Even though these people were in a very tough spot, the Lord was going to give them the grace, and he did, for Antipas to give, lay down his life for Christ. And so we're not just to say, well, you know, I'm in a too tough a spot. I guess I have an excuse. No, you think of that girl that wouldn't stomp on the cross and really was such an example to the others that, no, I am going to be faithful to the Lord. She knelt down, prayed for courage, and stepped out to her death in, in honor of her genuine faith in the Lord. And those people that stepped on the cross, could some of them have been genuine believers? Well, it's, it's, it's possible that their faith was shaken, but you also have to wonder, don't you? Maybe, maybe they weren't believers after all anyway. And so when we 
um, when God puts us to the test, um, we don't have the right to just say, well, that was too hard. Lord, I just can't do that. Matter of fact, that's conclusion number four, and that is God empowers us to be faithful no matter the location. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You can never say to God, that was too tough. He would always give you the strength if you'll seek it. First John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And although the church of Pergamos was in a rough place, they still had the ability to stand for Christ. Some of them were proving that, and some of them tragically were, 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 not, were proving that they were not relying on the Lord enough. Number five, God hates false doctrine. You can see that here. Jesus is saying these people need to be rooted out of your church. And he expects us to hate it too. In Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul and um, his uh, uh, friend Silas were listening to some people that, that actually came out of, um, of uh, Jerusalem area. And these are supposed to be good brothers. And they come down and they're starting to teach the, the Gentile believers that you've got to do these things and keep the law in order to go to heaven. And, and uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, 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 I think it was Paul and Silas there, they stopped them. And they said, no, you can't, you can't teach that this is wrong. And so, um, again, they're not, he said, we didn't tolerate this for an hour, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. So God hates false doctrine. He expects us to hate it too because it matters. Number six, truth is more important than unity. Boy, we, you know, um, the, we have the signs around, you know, coexist and all these things. And, and, and as Christians, we don't believe in, in, in uh, persecuting those who don't agree with us. We don't. Uh, matter of fact, that's part of the, our, our Baptist heritage where we, we believe that when we say separation of church and state. All we're meaning by that is not that you can't pray at a football game or, or, or uh, pray in the, in the uh, Senate or uh, in the Supreme Court. What we're saying is no one should be forced to believe or disbelieve in Christ. People have the right given by God to make their own choice. And, and that being said, it doesn't mean that if you're going to call yourself a Christian and and be a member, not just attend, but you're going to be a member of a Bible-preaching church, there's a standard of conduct that you need to live up to. And so in James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, But the wisdom that is from, a, from above is first pure, then peaceable. And it goes on in a bunch of other things. But isn't that interesting? It's first pure, then peaceable. So it, purity is even more important than unity. And a lot of Christians don't understand that. They think that it's not loving. And and matter of fact, the Apostle Paul dealt with that thoroughly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when there was a guy living with his stepmom. And he's saying, you're puffed up. You're proud about this. You're thinking, evidently they were thinking, well, we're just so loving we can put up with this. And Paul's saying, no, you need to get this guy out of your church because it's hurting himself. Again, remember that two-edged sword of immorality. It's It's hurting the testimony of Christ in your community. You need to deal with it. Now, it's not something we want to do, not something we jump up and down to do. Paul's saying you need to do it. Uh, conclusion number seven, Christ will greatly reward those who obey him and stand against false doctrine. It's clear. Jesus is saying, look, if you overcome and you deal with this, I'm going to give you the, the blessings of the hidden man of the white stone and the, and the, and the new name. Now, uh, so let me give you some applications. Uh, Christ's words to the church of Pergamos show you and I 
that we must understand that the truth about Christ is to be defended, his deity, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his death for our sins, his bodily resurrection, the fact that he is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what he said. If I'm going to be loyal to him, I need to say that without without apology. And so to defend what Jesus said and his and his character is is vital. It's 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 part of being a Christian. And those Christians that are willing to throw those things out, they're really showing that they don't have um, a, a, a love for the Lord, which is, is really questioning whether they know Christ at all. Number two, that the truth about salvation must be defended, because this is how people uh, are rescued. So the fact that we come to um, uh, Christ um, and only through Christ to heaven, the fact that it's not by works, the fact that you must repent and believe, the fact that salvation is secure, but it's but it's and the reason why is because it comes because of the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins. The fact that that salvation does not give us an excuse to live lawless lives. These are all things that need to be defended because if you love Jesus, you cannot be tolerant of those who slander him. Just like you wouldn't be tolerant of someone that slandered your child or your husband or your wife. If you really love that person, you're not tolerant of those who slander him. And the Church of Pergamos, they had some good points. Loyal in a very difficult uh, uh, to Christ's name, you know, holding fast the faith and, and even people laying down their lives. But um, they were starting to let uh, moral compromise in. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't do that. You've got to deal with it. May God help you and I to not just talk a good line, but to live out that truth. And that's what the Church of Pergamos needed to do if they were going to preserve the gospel in their city. Um, let's pray. Father, bless these folks. Help them to understand what we've, uh, what Christ has taught. Uh, Lord, may we not back away from his truth. It certainly isn't politically correct. It certainly isn't well understood by those that don't know thee. We're grateful for your goodness and pray you'll give us understanding of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible-preaching church, to consider visiting us at Calkins. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. with classes for all ages. Our morning worship service begins at 10 a.m. And our Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30 p.m. We provide a nursery for each of these services. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.